0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on October 3rd, 2018, covering PwC's Quarterly Tax Accounting webcast. The panelists for the webcast were Rick Levin, a PwC tax partner and our U.S. Tax Accounting Services Leader, Jennifer Spang, a PwC tax partner in our National Professional Services Practice, and Luke Cervani, a PwC tax partner, and Tracy Hammond, a PwC tax director, both in our U.S. tax accounting services practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on accounting for the new guilty provision. Have a listen.
1: All right. So let's talk about guilty. Uh, our next topic, and and this one is one where uh, it's been uh, at the center of a lot of discussions around tax reform. Uh, maybe because of its catchy name. Maybe because it seems to be impacting more people than we thought at least at first with the concept of Guilty. Uh, but there's also been some uh, unique tax accounting issues that have come up that we thought it would be good to, to share with everybody today. So before we do that, uh, I wanted just to do a bit of a refresher around Guilty, not getting too deep into the details, but a couple things just to drive home. Um, it is a complex area. There are a lot of specific issues that you need to address. But one of the things that um, that's interesting about Guilty, it, it's a Inclusion, that happens at the parent company level, U.S. parent company level, and it's uh, the aggregation of your CFCs or foreign subsidiaries' tested income, and to the extent that that amount exceeds uh, some deemed return, which is referred to as QBI, then you have this guilty inclusion. Uh, And the concept of whether or not, you know, so guilty when it was introduced by the Senate, I should say, if you go back to late last year, there was some, almost immediately some Um, questions coming up whether or not that ought to be considered as in your deferreds because this concept of tested income that that's part of this is a lot of similarities to the branch concept which we were dealing with under the old law and so um, the FASB came out with a QA and a early in the year back in February and kind of set up the policy choice to effectively say you could either treat guilty as part of your deferreds or you simply treat it as a period cost to make it's up to you to make that choice and since then I think feel like, or probably the facts would back this up, but most people have put this underneath, parked it underneath SAB-118 and haven't quite made the call yet, so are still evaluating whether or not they make this policy choice. But I guess, Jen, turning to you, if you were to do this, if somebody's out there thinking about doing this, what does that even look like, the computation itself?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's another great one. It's um, not an easy one. Um, obviously, this is unchartered territory in many respects. There's nothing specific in the income tax accounting standard to tell you this is how you should treat this. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of conversation discussions as well as discussions with the FASB and um, SEC. So, you know, let's talk about what one alternative would be. Um, and you hit on it with the branch accounting analogy. So there are really two th- You need to think about the outside basis and the inside basis. So, let me start with the inside. When you're thinking about the guilty model, um, what you're really doing is looking through and into the CFCs or the foreign subsidiaries in order to see if there are temporary differences, deferreds, in that foreign jurisdiction, which when they reverse will result in an impact on the guilty inclusion or guilty tax. Um, And so when you think about it from that perspective, there are really three legs. Um, I guess three legs, I'm told I say three-legged <laughs> stool here. <laughs> uh, so one leg we're already dealing with, right? So that's uh, those temporary differences in the foreign jurisdiction, those exist today. Those are differences in the foreign jurisdiction between book and tax basis. Um, so you've already got that taken care of. When you add the next two pieces on that come in because of guilty – The first piece is when you have basis under US tax law, so really for guilty purposes, when you have basis and the tax basis and book basis are different, you could end up recording um, US guilty deferred taxes. So normally, if you have a deferred tax asset in the foreign jurisdiction and you have basis in the US, um, you're going to have a deferred tax asset in the US and vice versa. so then that brings you to the final leg, which is the anticipatory or sometimes foregone foreign tax credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea here is that as that temporary difference reverses, um, it will have a future impact or it will have an impact on the future availability of foreign tax credits, either higher or lower. And so that third leg is really recording that, that future impact um, for, you know, again, more or less foreign tax credits as a result of that local deferred reversal. Um, Importantly that last one should be just focused on the reversal of the deferreds that exist. It's not like looking at other type of foreign tax credit from other income you might have. Clearly, deferred reversals are only one aspect of a guilty calculation, so um, when you're recording that impact it should be based upon the reversals of the deferreds in the local jurisdiction.
1: Got you, okay. You know, you make it sound so easy. I don't know what's the problem here. Why are people not, you know, running out and recording uh, Guilty and Deferreds? Um, so, I mean, one of the things, if we think about the complexities of Guilty, the computation itself, once you start to think about how you might account for it in Deferreds, these things come into play, and you're trying to figure out what do you do with them. So maybe the best thing would, for us to, to address that would just be hitting one-on-one, you and I, and we can kind of go through this. So, QBI. I talked a little bit about QBI already. You've got this concept of of a deemed return, and your inclusion is going to be over and above that amount. So how would you take that into account, if at all, in yeah. the tem- as a temporary difference?
2: So for QBI, we think it's acceptable to not consider it in the calculation. And and probably an important level-setting aspect here is what we're really trying to do is identify or calculate what is the rate that we're going to apply to those U.S. deferreds. Like, how do we calculate the rate, which is the basis of the income tax accounting model? Um, And so, from our perspective, QBI, it's based on future investments, you know, where you are in your tangible property down the road, so we actually would feel pretty comfortable not including QBI in that calculation. But an alternative would, of course, be to do the opposite, go ahead and include (laughs) it. if you were including um, QBI in that measurement of your rate, you'd probably be looking at some kind of a graduated rate model. So you'd have to be determining for each of those years what impact QBI was going to have in order to determine what impact it should have on the rate. Now, realistically, most of the situations I've heard about, QBI is not material. Um, you know, so I, I would suspect many companies will decide not to include it. But you know, those are the two alternatives that we've talked about.
1: Certainly would make it a lot easier to right. exclude it. Right, clearly. Um, so once you then get beyond QBI and you've got your guilty inclusion, you then of course the next step of that computation is your Section two hundred and fifty deduction. You get a fifty percent deduction off of that, a removal of that income before you get to the taxable amount of guilty. Uh, how would you take that into account? Just thinking about it, it seems like a special deduction, or how would right. you take that into account in your deferreds?
2: Yeah, and that, that's obviously been the crux of the debate from our perspective, um, just the nature of two fifty it's a straight fifty percent reduction of your rate um, It seems to it makes sense to include that um, in calculating the tax rate so simply put, instead of booking your deferreds at twenty one percent you're booking them at ten and a half. Um, the alternative here is that you consider whether you'll get to the 250 deduction, Mm. because indeed there are um, potential limitations on it if you have NOLs. And I know, Luke, you're going to talk a little bit about this, but If you're thinking about NOLs or the interplay of some of the other provisions, they might start to limit, your taxable income can limit how much of that 250 deduction you get. So if you felt like you were going to be limited and you chose um, and you made that option to consider that in measuring your rate, then you wouldn't take the full 50% deduction. So those are sort of the two parameters. And I should say on both of these questions, um, you know, you talked about the policy choice that the FASB, you know, released in their Q&A. But after you get through that policy choice, you can see we have a bit of a menu of each other of these, choices. Yeah. So each of these decisions should be consistently applied. And so I think that will be important as companies are determining what model and how they'll follow that just in general.
3: Great. I
1: mean, the, the, the other, the last piece of the computation you actually already touched on briefly already, but the foreign tax credits. So once you've taken your guilty inclusion after the, after the 250 deduction, multiply it by 21 percent and then apply any FTCs. Anything else to add there?
2: Yeah, the the thing I'd add on this is you have to consider the limitations on your foreign tax credits. So a simple one to get your head around is we know that statutorily you can only get eighty percent. You can only get a foreign tax credit for eighty percent of the foreign taxes you paid. Um, So that's kind of an obvious limitation, and that should be taken into account when you're thinking about that anticipatory or forgone foreign tax credit that also could come into play, whether you have tested losses or, um, frankly, just the fact that you're only going to pay, let's say, 10 and a half of tax on guilty. Mm -hmm. Um, So how you think about that should come into your considerations. That should come into the measurement of that that foregone or anticipatory credit. Gotcha.
1: Okay. I want to go back to something you said earlier, because you talked about there were two ways to think about guilty deferreds inside, which we just talked about the other one was outside basis differences. So anything that that's everyone's favorite topic. Yeah, so I was going to say, it is a favorite that.
2: topic. I, I think the short answer here is that outside basis rules haven't changed, right? So you need to record deferred taxes for all of your temporary differences or all of your basis differences. But there are some exceptions. Um, and the two that apply here are, you know, one is if you're indefinitely reinvested those earnings in your foreign subsidiary, then you wouldn't record the liability if you were in a book-over-tax outside basis difference. And then if you're in a tax-over-book, you wouldn't record that asset unless there was evidence that it would reverse in the foreseeable future. All of that guidance is still the same. So with everything we've just talked about, you're looking into the CFC and you're capturing, I would say, a piece of your outside basis difference by looking through and into the subsidiary but that leaves you with a residual. You've accounted for a piece of your total, but you need to account for the entire. So when you're thinking about that residual, you both need to identify it, but then you also need to account for it. Accounting for it may be that it's an asset and there's no accounting to be done. Frankly, accounting for it could be that it will only reverse uh, upon liquidation. And there are a lot of other scenarios because of how guilty will play out in general. So the point is you just need to know it and you need to, you know, address how you're accounting for it through appropriate disclosures and the like, if nothing is required to be recorded.
1: And certainly can't ignore it. You know, as you can't ignore it, sort of yeah, hope it's that still here. <laughs> if, we, if I take on guilty deferreds on the inside, I should be able to ignore my outside, right? Yeah, not, probably... quite.
2: <laughs> not quite,
1: not um, quite. So Luke, um, there was a second policy choice mm-hmm. that I talked about. The first one, people probably familiar with. This one, maybe not so much. Uh, and this has to do with a very specific fact pattern when you have guilty and NOLs. Yep, you want to talk about yep. that one?
3: Sure. So this this pol- to, just to kind of work off that. So this addresses um, uh, when you have a guilty inclusion, how you consider the guilty inclusion in your valuation allowance assessment, the realizability for deferred tax assets for NOLs. Um, I'll say really quickly here: we we have a link um, to the through the portal. We have a white paper out on this that we put out in August. If if, if Folks out there want to look at this in some more detail or follow along as we go through this. The background here is that questions surfaced on um, companies that have guilty inclusions and NOLs. If you have a situation, a scenario, where the guilty inclusion is utilizing the NOL, however, absent the NOL, um, you still don't have incremental tax because of the 50% guilty deduction or foreign tax credits, how do you approach the realizability assessment for the NOLs? Because under that scenario those NOLs might not be providing any incremental cash tax benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the answer to that question I'll say, and then we're gonna go through a short example here, is that the, there's, the FASB agrees there's two acceptable approaches to this, but it is a policy determination. Um, and I'll define these in a minute, but there, there's a tax law ordering approach, and there's an incremental ta- cash tax savings approach to assess the realizability of your deferred tax assets for NOLs given your guilty inclusion position. So if we go through a short example on the next slide, um, this is very brief and high level, but it's here to illustrate the the basic point. We have a a company X who's forecasting US taxable income of 500. They have pre-reform NOLs of 500. That that taxable income uh, includes the guilty inclusion. As you can see in the bottom row of this example, the, with the company with NOLs without NOLs ultimately pays the same incremental cash tax payable um, so it goes back to that question well, how do I you know how how should we address um, the the fact that that we have NOLs but they're not providing any incremental cash tax savings and as I already mentioned, the answer is either approach um, so let's talk about each of the approaches if we move to the next slide. So the first approach is the tax law ordering approach, and that is you know simply. Um, applying your NOLs to your taxable income, that, in, that is inclusive of your guilty inclusion, um, and that's how you approach the valuation allowance assessment for those deferred tax assets for NOLs. Es- essentially if, if, if you look at that, the, the 50% deduction in the foreign tax credits may not even be a factor in that valuation allowance process under uh, the tax law ordering approach. You compare that to the tax, I'm sorry, to the incremental cash tax savings approach, And this is um, a with and without calculation. So you look at what your incremental cash taxes would be with the NOLs and without the NOLs, and you compare the two, and and what that answer is is essentially how you determine the realizability and the amount of your valuation allowance that you record against the deferred tax asset for your NOLs. Um, There's some factors here, as you can see on the slide, to consider. I want to emphasize, this is an accounting policy election. Um, So companies have to, do the assessment and make the determination of which approach that they're going to follow and then follow it consistently. Um, and, and there's a variety of factors to be thinking about um, as you go through that process. Certainly, if we think about the ETR, I'll say that the incremental cash tech savings approach will likely have less volatility on the ETR. Um, but with that will come a process whereby which, you know, a, a with and without process, you know, some scheduling is going to have to be evidenced. Um, each period to ascertain um, and and evidence the amount of valuation allowance um, that needs to be recorded. Um, I'll say that uh, as I mentioned it's it's an accounting policy you know there's likely going to have to be some work, so companies are going to have to go through that and, and make sure that they get that it's policy a bit of maybe. a trade
1: off at the end I mean yeah. either do you take some of that volatility out but then take on this more complex computation exactly at the end. exactly okay, I do have one more question for you. Jen talked about section two hundred and fifty when we were going back and forth on the measurement of guilty deferreds. Yep. You also mentioned it. Should there be some consistency in the two different approaches
3: there should be consistency so if if you are under a deferred tax model for guilty um, It would seem counterintuitive. I think Jen was alluding to this when when she was going through that. If if you're applying if you're applying a deferred tax model and you're under the ordering approach, it would seem likely and it would be counterintuitive to be including the 250 deduction um, in your deferred accounting Mm -hmm. if you're applying the ordering approach and it's not a factor. So that's something companies should be thinking about, making sure they're connecting the dots between um, those those policies. Yeah, maybe somewhat of an
1: obvious point, but still important to remember. Yep. Yep. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.